You turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 20. Pew Bible page 28. Genesis chapter 20, Pew Bible page 28. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. One thing you might be thinking as we read Genesis chapter 20 is, I think I've heard this before. Of course, the sermon's title this morning is, She is my sister. Again, for what we see here is a pattern being created in the life of Abraham And this pattern brings to mind uh, something that is important for us to discuss, and that is, what are we to do with somebody who is called the great patriarch, the father of the faithful, who has habitual sin, uh, one of a pretty severe nature? How are we supposed to wrestle with that? Um, And it's important because uh, that's an element of the Christian life that we have to wrestle with. 
One time, the great uh, Anglican J.I. Packer talked about how um, a, a Christian tradition that he came into when he was saved, um, a higher life, second experience kind of Christianity, where terms like let go and let God are often discussed as secrets to uh, the special uber-Christian way of living. That somehow, if you can go through a particularly uh, excruciating conversion experience, that you will be ushered into a higher plane of spiritual life. And you'll no longer have habitual sins like Abraham, our forefather, had. Well, what happened to J.I. Packer? Well, he, he shared, he wrote about it. He said, I scraped my inside, figuratively speaking, to ensure that my consecration was complete and labored to let go and let God when temptation made its presence felt. At that time, I did not know that Harry Ironside, sometime pastor of Moody Memorial Church Chicago, once drove himself into a full-scale mental breakdown through trying to get into the higher life as I was trying to get into it. And I would not have dared to conclude, as I have concluded since, that this higher life as described as a will-o'-the-wisp, an unreality that no one has ever laid hold of at all, and that those who testify to their experience in these terms really, if unwittingly, distort what has happened to them. All I know was that the expected experience was not coming. The technique was not working. Why not? Well, since the teaching declared that everything depends on consecration being total, the fault had to lie in me. So I must scrape my inside again to find whatever maggots of unconsecrated selfhood still lurked there. And I became fairly frantic. In fact, Packer will go on to admit that he almost committed suicide. Is that what the Christian life is supposed to be? Scraping our insides until we finally come to a higher life Christianity. A second experience ushering into a Christian life. Um, that doesn't have habitual sins. Well, I would admit to you that people who believe so wouldn't know really how to handle Genesis chapter 20 and the life of our forefather Abraham, who is often a, a contradiction, a man of great faith expressed in great acts of faith and a man of great lack of faith. And so, what do we grasp from Genesis chapter 20? Well, if there's one thing that I'd like us to grasp, it is this. And I'm going to clarify in more detail what I mean by this towards the end of my sermon. Um, but I want this to settle with us because I think it's important. Our theme this morning is God is good even when we are not. God is good even when we are not. We've got four points this morning. The first is Abraham lies again. The second is God's protection. The third, Abraham is confronted again. And the fourth, God's provision. So let's start with that first point, Abraham lies again. Genesis chapter 20 opens up with a reaffirmation that Abraham is still very much a pilgrim. He has pilgrim status. He is somebody who does not settle down. Um, we left where he was at the trees of Mamre for some time. 
Um, and for whatever reason, it seems as if he has needed to wander once again. And we're told, he left there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And this, this reminds us, this tells us once again that Abraham is a wanderer. He's a stranger in this land. Even though God has promised him that his, his, uh, for, his uh, children will inherit this land and they will be as great as the sand on the seashores and the stars in the sky, Abraham lives in tents and he wanders around this land that God has promised him. And we're told that he came to Gerar and he stayed there. And in verse 2, we are reminded once again of Abraham's pattern. He said of his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. In verse 13, actually, we'll find something even more provocative, something even more uh, frightening to realize. That when Abraham is asked, why do you do this? He answers, when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, my wife, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So this is something that Abraham has done everywhere. And we have only been told or notified of the time it happened in Egypt in Genesis chapter 12 and here now in Genesis chapter 20. So here is a besetting sin, an indwelling sin of Abraham, a habitual sin. A habitual sin where he believes it's more important to protect himself than to be the protector and watch over his wife. That he believes it's okay to lie and to put at danger, at risk, the, his wife's own life for the sake of his own preservation and protection. This is something that Abraham has done before, he's doing now, and even admits this is something he does all the time. How are we supposed to grasp that and understand that? And maybe it's a question that brings up something that you've often asked yourself. How can I say I have repented if I continue to commit the same type of sin over and over and over? Well, I would like to admit, first of all, that there is such a thing as indwelling sin, habitual sin, besetting sin, uh, that we as Christians struggle with. It's a reality that we have to deal with. It's a reality that J.I. Packer continued to struggle with so much and it was in conflict with the theology that he was taught about what the Christian life is that he almost killed himself. It's a reality in which Paul in Romans chapter 7 cries out to God, God, I find these two laws at work within me. I want to do what is right, but I do what is wrong. Who will save me from this body of sin? Who will save me from this con conflict going on within me, this indwelling sin? Well, I will tell you that uh, a, a helpful way to look at it is instead of using the term repenting of sin, um, when, when we are talking about indwelling sin or habitual sin, we should use the word that the scripture uses, which is confessing our sin. And 1 John talks about this in verses 8 and 9, those great popular verses 
uh, that are helpful for us to consider and think about when we consider this issue of indwelling sin going on within us, indwelling sin that we see happening in the life of uh, the great father of our faith, Abraham himself. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Well, if we are called to confess instead of repent, I do think it's important that I mention that there are two kinds of confession. Two kinds of confession that can happen when we are dealing with habitual sin or indwelling sin in our life. The first is that we do something we know we're not supposed to do, and we do express guilt and sorrow for sinning. But uh, there's sort of a wink going on with our confession. Underneath, there's this quiet assumption that we're going to do this sin again. Uh, We feel bad about our habitual sin, but we have surrendered to its inevitability. Um, God, please forgive me for the sin of lusting after other women and looking at pornographic images on the screen. But deep down in my heart, I know that I'm probably going to do it later this week. God, please forgive me for um, getting angry with my wife and my children and losing control um, and letting go to those emotions and that outrage. Um, please, I feel really horrible about it, but I, I actually, really, I, I, deep down in my heart, I know I'm going to do it again, probably tomorrow. You see how that is, is a confessing, but it's, um, it's not a sincere confessing. It's a, it's a confessing with a wink at our sin, like, hey, you know, I'll be back. Right? And we have to test our hearts because we can do that. We can do that. We can so easily take advantage of the grace and the mercy of God and wink at the deception of sin. And we can confess to make ourselves feel a little bit better in the moment. But deep down, we really know we're not going to give it up. We're not going to give it up. But there's a second kind of confession. And that is we express guilt and sorrow for sinning just like we can do in the first sense. But we have a real hatred of our sin. And that hatred of our sin is so real that we have every intention as we confess our sins to God that we're going to make war against it. We're going to overcome this sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have no intention of committing this sin again. So yes, we do have indwelling sin, habitual sin, but my question is, how are you confessing this sin? I admit, I, 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 I can do the first kind of confession a lot. And I have done a lot in my Christian life. But that's not what we're called to. There's also two kinds of sin. Two kinds of sin that we need to be thinking of. Um, and the first kind of sin is the sin that blindsides us. Um, it's not premeditated or planned. Uh, it's a spontaneous occurrence. Um, uh, something happens that causes you to not be able to think about it, but in, in a, an instinctual, sort of impulsive way, 
You, you give in to anger because somebody pulled in front of you uh, on the street or on the road. Um, you, you, uh, you're not intending to, but you're, uh, you're, you're cruising through the channels and you come across something um, that incites lust in you. Okay? Um, this is not an intentional kind of sin. This is something that happens because we live in a world uh, that surrounds us with these kinds of things and we can't always protect ourselves from these kinds of occurrences. That doesn't make them any less sin. There's still sin that need to be confessed of. Um, but it does put it in a different category. And the second kind of sin is a sin that's planned out and then committed. You know, so instead of uh, accidentally seeing something that fills you with lust, um, you set time apart to go on your computer and to do it. Instead of, instead of uh, not intending to do this certain thing, you, uh, you actually hide money so that you can spend it. It's planned. It's premeditated. So how do we understand our own failure as Christians? How do we wrestle with these things? Well, I would tell you that if the way that we're dealing with habitual sin or indwelling sin is by confessing so that we don't feel guilty and we feel a little bit of relief from that, but we're really winking at our sin. We're not going to give it up. And our sin is not the um, um, impulsive kind of sin, spontaneous kind of sin, but it's the planned out, it's premeditated kind of sin. Then we should be worried about the condition of our soul before God. We should be worried about where we're at. Nonetheless, it's true. We still struggle with indwelling sin. And how do we grasp, how do we understand our own failure as Christians uh, before God? How do we deal with that? Um, well, it's interesting that the book of the Bible, which is so very much confronting the issue of sin, also very much confronts the issue of perfectionism. And the idea that somehow we can place ourselves in a situation or circumstance or grow so much as a Christian uh, that, that we're better than the other Christians. That we can be like the Pharisees. Dear Lord, thank you that I'm not like these other people. That we can usher ourselves into a second state of Christianity. That we are an uber-Christian and there are lower Christians who are lower on the totem pole. That we can usher ourselves into a, 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 an estate where we're no longer dealing with habitual sin or indwelling sin within us. And that, of course, is 1 John chapter 1, which I read. Listen to the way John puts these paradoxes together. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So don't claim to be without sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So confess your sins. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Do you see that tension between acknowledgement of our sin um, and our need to grow in godliness and holiness, but also uh, guarding our hearts that we do not become perfectionists? Well, John Piper has often said, the evidence of being a Christian is not that there are no tactical defeats in the war. 
but that you keep fighting until the promised victory is given. So how do we make sense of the father, the faithful Abraham, having this habitual sin of mistreating his wife, of lying, of, of preserving his own life and caring for his own life over those of his own family and his wife? How do we deal with that? Well, we deal with that by understanding that we all, as believers, have habitual and indwelling sin, and that is not something that disqualifies us from being a recipient of the grace and mercy of God. The question is, is that something, that sin, something that we give up and give into, or is that sin something that we fight against every day of our lives, and we never make peace with it? And I think that we can determine by the life of Abraham, by the way that he is tested and his willingness to give up his son, his only beloved son, that Abraham did not make peace with the sin in his life because of the grace and the mercy of God at working in him. So that's Abraham lying again, but what about God's protection? In verses 3 through 7, we read that... Abimelech then takes Sarah into his harem, into his collection of wives and slaves, um, which is very interesting at this point in Sarah's life um, because she's got to be pushing 100 years old. So you've got to be thinking to yourself, <laughs> Sarah must be a very, very beautiful 100-year-old woman. Of course, God did promise that he would revive her miraculously and give her the ability to bear a child, even though all her life she was not able to do this. So we could say this is, this is an element of God's miraculous work in reviving Sarah, bringing youth back to her, that this king would look upon Sarah uh, in her age and say, I, I want her. So anyway, uh, Abimelech takes Sarah into his household, um, and then we read that God comes to Abimelech in a dream, and he says to Abimelech, you're a dead man. You're a dead man because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Um, now Abimelech defends himself because he did not know this. He did not have this knowledge. And so he says, I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And then God responds to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. So I've kept you from sinning against me. That's why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you'll live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Well, it's a very interesting story. Oftentimes, um, God reveals himself to his promised people through dreams and through intercessions in this way. But he also can often do this outside of the covenant community. Um, for instance, in the form of the dream of Pharaoh, which Joseph interprets, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which Daniel interprets, um, God does this um, to speak to people who are outside the covenant community. And uh, at this time, in the ancient Near East, there were laws. If you look at the Code of Hammurabi, there's laws against adultery. So uh, the adultery, the, the idea, the concept of having another woman's, uh, another man's wife was uh, a law that was general in practice. It was something that was accepted even by these uh, other nations that weren't uh, Abraham and, and didn't have the revelation of God's law um, through the book of, of the law. Um, this is something that they would accept as wrong. 
And so when God comes to him and says, you're a dead man because you've taken another man's wife, this is something that Abimelech wouldn't have said, well, I don't care. He would, have, he would have cared because that was part of their law code as well. Um, what's interesting about this particular interaction is that the, re, the way that God says you'll be saved, because some, at, some, at some point um, Abimelech and his whole household has been put under some sort of illness or sickness, uh, which we then later on see is that uh, all the women have been, their wombs have been closed, um, and God in some fashion has kept Abimelech from being with Sarah in a sexual manner. Um, he's restrained him in some way um, from sinning in that fashion. Um, that God says to Abimelech, you go and you have Abraham pray for you because he's a prophet. And if you have Abraham pray for you, you and your whole family, you'll live. This is what... Um, I find interesting about this. First, we acknowledge that in verse 6, God has the ability to restrain sin. He does it with Abimelech, and there is no question about that. He can do it in our day and age today. He could do it in kings, presidents, nations, restrain sin. But verse 7 brings to us an irony. The irony that the one who created the problem in the first place by his lying and his deception is the one whom God asks to intercede in order to save the king. Now Jacob's in his commentary mentions this is not the only time that the deity is portrayed as overlooking the faults of the favored and placing the harmed under the control of the one who is responsible for the harm, indicating that God's purpose is more important than the person involved. Well, what's God's purpose in this situation? Well, besides the fact that God is seeking to teach Abraham, who will later on be the teacher of the people of God, and who must instruct him in the nature and character of God, not only of God's wrath as God displayed in Sodom and Gomorrah, but also in relation to God's grace and mercy and the way that God is going to receive, give, give Abraham grace and mercy in this situation. But God's intention is that through the descendants of Abraham, all the people of the world will be blessed. And Abraham has been promised by God. He's been visited by God. And God said, this time next year, Abraham, you will have a son from Sarah. And here Abraham goes and he puts at risk the entire covenant promise of God by placing Sarah in the hands of another man. So God's purpose in bringing Jesus Christ as a descendant of Abraham into this world through whom his death, burial, and resurrection would bless all the nations, Abraham is putting at risk here. And so God's purpose is more important than the person involved. And so Abraham here is called a prophet. The first time this word is used in all the book of the Bible, he is given this title. Now Abraham is not a prophet like we think of prophets in the Old Testament. Those who would come and give declarations of God's impending wrath and judgment if the people of God would not turn away from sin. Um, God is uh, more like a prophet in the sense 
that the prophet's job often was to intercede for others. We saw Abraham's position of intercessory prayer with Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see it at work here again in his role as prophet that God calls Abraham to intercede on behalf of Abimelech and his household um, for their salvation. Intercessory prayer is something that we, uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, are called to do now. You see, even a person like Abraham, who needs to repent of his own sinful actions, needs God's grace and mercy at work in his life for his own indwelling habitual sin, and lack of faith, we see can intercede with God on behalf of others. And that should encourage us. That should tell us something. If Abraham, in the midst of his sinful choice of lying and putting his wife at risk and leaving his wife unprotected, can be called on to pray and intercede for others, so can we. Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism tells us the one way we reflect through Christ that prophetic role is in intercessory prayer. If you know Lord's Day 12, the Heidelberg Catechism, it tells us, why are you called a Christian? Because you're called to reflect Christ in the roles of prophet, priest, king. Well, how do we reflect Christ in the role of prophet? Will we intercede for others, just as Christ is interceding for us now? And it's also in knowing that in our weakness and in our sin, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And it's also helpful for us to know that even now Christ continues his intercessory work before the Father on our behalf, that this should give us confidence as we, just like Abraham, fulfill our prophetic calling to intercede in prayer for others, for our nation, for our president, for our leaders, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the lost who don't know Jesus. Are you praying for others? When you pray, are many of your prayers or most of your prayers about things that you need, things that you want, things that are for you? Or are your prayers an intercession on behalf of others? And both of those things are important. Both of those things we should do. But one way in which we are called Christians is so that we could intercede on behalf of others in prayer. Well, then Abraham is confronted again. Point number three. After God comes to Abimelech in a dream, Abimelech wakes up the next day. He gathers all of his people with him, and he says, Can you believe what happened? They're all frightened to hear that Abraham's God is going to curse or kill Abimelech and his whole family because of what was done, because uh, Abraham lied and deceived. And so Abimelech calls Abraham to him, and he confronts him. What have you done? What have I done to you that you should do such a thing? And, and he gives Abraham an opportunity to express his reason uh, for doing this. And if you read verses 11 through uh, 13, what you're going to find there is a case study in the justification and rationalization of sin. And we do this as human beings. We do this. We justify and rationalize our behavior. If you look up uh, rationalization, 
Um, and you see the definition. It says, the action of attempting to explain or justify behavior or an attitude with logical reasons, even if these are not appropriate. We rationalize our sin. We justify it. We, we, we do all kinds of mental gymnastics to try to make whatever it is that we have done less worse than it is, not tied to reality. This is in very real sense, in a lot of ways, how we turn our confessions into just getting rid of our guilt and winking at sin, and we continue to do sins that we plan out, that we premeditate, that we uh, really know we aren't going to give up. We rationalize them and we justify them. Well, this is what Abraham says. He said to himself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Uh, This is the first place that this phrase is used in the scriptures, fear of God. Uh, It's developed more fully or particularly in wisdom literature. When you look at the Psalms, when you look at the Proverbs, when you look at Ecclesiastes, uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Um, That's not necessarily the way that Abraham is using it uh, in this sense. He's using it in a colloquial sense. Um, There is no fear of, of, of a deity. This is a godless place, is what Uh, Abraham is saying. Uh, And so, the one who fears God obeys him because he recognizes God's superiority. And so Abraham is saying that uh, there is no fear of God in this place, and so I'm going to lie. Ironically, in this narrative, if you read Genesis chapter 22, or just Genesis chapter 20, the one who is fearing God is Abimelech in his household, and the one who lacks fear of God is Abraham. So Abraham justifies and rationalizes his sin by saying, well, I thought that you guys didn't really care about morals. You didn't really have any fear of a deity, of a higher authority. Well, Abraham, you should have feared your higher authority. You should have feared your God. The God who would tell you that lying and endangering your wife And putting at risk the covenant promises that I have given you, that you cannot do if you fear me. So that's ironic, of course. And then verse 12, Abraham, he uses this excuse a lot. He's used this rationalization and justification a lot. You know what, but you know, she really is my sister. I mean, really, I mean, she really is my sister. I mean, not of my mother, but of the daughter of my father, you know. In this case, in this situation, half-truth really is a full lie. Because he omitted the most important part of his relationship with Sarah, and that is that they were husband and wife. They were husband and wife. You see, adultery was considered a great sin even amongst many ancient Near Eastern cultures of that time, like I said, you can read it in the Code of Hammurabi, um, there is laws against adultery. So in order to protect himself, Abraham once again put his wife, and even worse, the promise of descendants at great risk. 
And verse 13 once again tells us that this is his, this is his pattern everywhere. Are you rationalizing and justifying your sin? Have you gotten into a pattern of sin that has become so natural, so repetitious, that you just rationalize it, you justify it? Well, you know, you, think, you say to yourself, well, it's not as bad as what these other people do. Do you, say, do you say to yourself things like this? Well, I used to do it every week, and now I do it every month, so it's better. Is that what we're called to do with our sin, rationalize it or justify it? Or are we called to confess it, to make war against it, to not be at peace with it? And finally, we come to the fourth point, God's provision. In verses 14 and following, what we see is very much a pattern that we saw in Egypt. Abraham does the same thing in Egypt. What happens at the end is that Abraham is given slaves, cattle, sheep, all gold, all this blessing. Pharaoh just says, take all this stuff and get out of here. But unlike that situation or occurrence, Abimelech, he says, here's some sheep, here's some cattle, female slaves, slaves, gave them to Abraham, returned Sarah's wife to him. And then he said, my land is before you, live wherever you like. Uh, but then he also addresses Sarah specifically and directly. And he says to her, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You're completely vindicated. And so uh, the importance in that is for there to be a public witness that Sarah was not violated in any way. That she has been, uh, but if there's any offense taken by what was happening, if there's any way in which her honor could be lessened um, by the perception of what that looked like, um, Abimelech goes above and beyond to vindicate her and to show that there was nothing that, that went on between them. Uh, this is grace provided. Um, here it is. Just as in Egypt, Abraham leaves this encounter richer and wealthier, despite his obvious failure. Livestock, servants are given to him. He's given a choice of the land in which to live. Sarah's vindicated as having not been touched and given back to Abraham with an added bonus of a thousand shekels of silver. And then Abraham, of all people, of the characters in this story, Abraham, the one who lacked faith, the one who lied, the one who was deceiving he prays. God hears. And Abimelech and his court are restored to health. Where we read that his wife and his slave girls could have children again, for the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah, um, because there was no risk that was going to be taken in uh, Abraham and Sarah having Isaac and the descendants that would come from him. Now, I, I understand that some of you may be baffled by this story. This would be a scripture passage where we would not seek to put forth Abraham as an example and say things like, be an Abraham. He's God's chosen. But in this passage, he almost sounds like the bad guy. And Abimelech is the innocent one, the good guy. But in the end, Abraham is the one who comes out on top, not Abimelech. And it feels a little bit like the bad guy wins. In Genesis chapter 20. Well, Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on Genesis 
says it perfectly when speaking on this passage and that tension that we feel. He says, the preeminence of Abraham here rests not on Abraham's virtue, but on God's promise. As it stands, the text makes the claim that Abraham is the chosen of God, not by words, not even by faith, which is feeble here, but only by God's incredible grace. Thus, we can hardly advance on Calvin's summary, the infirmity of man and the grace of God. The infirmity of both men is evident, but God's grace overrules. God's provision comes through Jesus Christ, the perfect prophetic intercessor. Now, this is the final thing I want to leave you with because I, I don't want you to get confused about the theme. God is good even when we are not. You know, should this situation, Genesis chapter 20, have been something that communicated to Abraham that he should just keep on sinning because despite his fall into sin, God blessed him and showed him grace. In fact, he did this before in Genesis 12, and he did it now. And you know what? When I sin, when I lie, I don't get in trouble. In fact, I walk away even more blessed than I was before. Is that something that it should communicate to Abraham? Is that something that our continuing sin and receiving of blessing and grace and mercy communicate to us? No, we should not go on sinning that grace may abound, may it never be. You see, when I say God is good even when we are not, I'm not discrediting that oftentimes God's goodness is expressed in our discipline. And the way that our sins bring consequences in this world that remind us that we are called to let go of that is in this world, the sin, the things that bring suffering into our life. We are reminded that sin is actually what the Heidelberg Catechism calls it, misery. When I say God is good, even when we are not, I am not discrediting that oftentimes God can bring us into a time in which we do not feel his presence in order to teach us and refine us. When I'm saying God is good, even when we are not, I am not saying that every time that we sin or make peace with sin or, never, or don't fight against indwelling sin, God will forgive us, show us, well, God will forgive us, but God will bring us blessing instead of um, discipline. That's what happens here in Abraham's situation. But I do want us to know that at the end of the day, it is actually the grace of God which empowers us in our battle against sin. It is actually the revelation that our sins have been forgiven that causes sin to lose its grip on us. It is actually what that song, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, says. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. The acknowledgement that in the cross of Jesus Christ, our sins, the power of our sin has been canceled. The grace and mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ is the way forward should remind us that even when we are in the midst of a battle against sin, even when we are struggling with indwelling sin, or habitual sin, like Abraham our father was, God is good even when we are not. God 
in whatever way he deems necessary in the lives of those whom Christ has died for, will bring to our mind the sins that are separating us from him, will cause us to have a true and right confession, will cause us to have a desire and a hatred to fight against that sin, he will not let us go. He will, in his grace and his mercy, cause us to never lose our desire to fight against sin all the days of our life. The evidence of being a Christian is not that there are no tactical defeats in the war, but that you keep fighting until the promised victory is given. Uh, I do believe Abraham kept fighting until the promised victory was given. And my prayer is that we would know in the grace and mercy of God that we can keep fighting against sin until that day comes and the promised victory is given. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that you have given us grace and mercy, even though we continue to struggle against sin. May, in your grace and mercy, you empower us to confess our sins. Empower us to hate our sin, to make war against our sin, to fight against the flesh all the days of our life, to put to death the old man, and to bring into newness of life the new man through Jesus Christ. In his death we've died, in his resurrection we are new creatures. May we, with Paul the Apostle, say, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. May we, like Paul the Apostle, say, Christ has been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ, and now I live. The life I live, I live through Jesus Christ, the risen and glorified Savior. May we, Heavenly Father, know that even when we are not good, you are good. That even when we struggle with sin, fall into cycles of sin, and that you, in your grace and your mercy, will call us. You will not let us go. You will not give us up. You, Heavenly Father, have redeemed us in Jesus Christ, and the work you've begun in us, you will bring to completion. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and sing with me? A song of preparation, celebration, hymnal 350. God so loved the world on the screen.